Hi, everyone. Welcome back. Great to be with you. And thank you so much for joining me for another episode of the podcast. We are going to do things a little differently. We are going to do a masterclass on gratitude. As I have been scanning the episodes to date, we're at almost 200 episodes, which is almost four years of this podcast. And I began to see that there's some incredible patterns that are emerging in that we've had some world-class experts in, in a number of different topics. And when you go back and listen to the episodes again, and you listen to the episodes that are similar in topic from multiple different people who are working and dedicating their careers to the exact same thing, you begin to see some patterns and truths emerge from the conversations. And so I wanted to share this with you as well as a chance for us to go back, learn, and set ourselves up for reimagining the future and moving forwards in such a way that we make the world a better place. And there's no better way to start that than by thinking about gratitude. So I've shared today three interviews that I did. The first one with John Foley that's a little bit longer, former lead pilot for the Blue Angels demonstration team for the U.S. Navy, Steve Ferran, who's dedicated his career to the power of gratitude, and Pete Bambachi, who's the leader of the GenWell Project. And when you listen to these three interviews, you will begin to see some cool patterns emerge. We will learn so much about the practice and benefits of gratitude uh, and how to install these into our lives. So without any further delays, please enjoy this Masterclass on Gratitude with John Foley, Steve Ferran, and Pete Bombacci. John, thanks for joining us. Greg, I'm glad to be here. A real honor. Thank you. <laughs> nice. So one of the first times that we connected, I basically said, John, take me back to when you were a kid and you're looking up from in your bedroom to fighter planes all over the place, like models. Take me back to that moment. I'm surprised you remember that first, right? But, you know, you just brought back such a great memory for me. You know, as a kid, my dad was in the Army, and I loved my dad, man. I just had so much respect and love and trust for him. I just wanted to grow up just like him. And he was all the, you know, showed me what integrity was by living it, not just speaking it, right? And I remember as a little kid, I would make those uh, little airplanes and put them up on with thumbtacks on the top of my ceiling. And I got bunk beds, even though I was just by myself, I would sleep on the top bunk bed so I could be closer to the airplanes. And every morning, that's the first sight I saw was these fighter jets laying over my head. That's crazy. And how did that guide your life from there? Like, because I did the same thing, but I ended up in a very different place. Like I had the F-18s, I had yeah, yeah, 14s. Like the F I had them all. I ended up in, as a scientist, and you ended up actually piloting these things. Like, how did that happen? Well, you know, it's interesting how dreams hit you, right? I personally think dreams hit you in the heart, not just the head. So something magical was happening there, and it wasn't just a one-time thing. I guess to answer your question was, succinctly was when I was 12, my dad took me to an air show. So we were living in Newport, Rhode Island. And he was going to Naval War College. And I just remember one afternoon, he said, hey, buddy, you know, he called me champ. He says, champ, let's go to the uh, air show. I said, great. And I remember that day distinctly. I mean, it's burned in my memory. I remember driving up to the show and, you know, crowds are all over the place, you know, tons of traffic and crowds. We get to the crowd line and you can feel the energy in the day. You know, it's like a huge sporting event. 
And then all of a sudden, these jets, they start to take off and the afterburners just rocked me. I could feel it in my heart. The little hairs were standing up. They do this loop right over my head. They do a high speed pass. And I mean, I was blown away and memorized about that. I turned to my dad that day and I said, dad, I'm going to do that. I was a 12 year old and it took me 18 more years to pull it off. But one day I was sitting in the cockpit of that Blue Angel jet that I had saw when I was 12 years old. That's funny that your dad called you champ. I actually call my dad champ. So it's, it's another wow. strange connection. Yeah. You said heart, not head. I want to go there for a second because that's something that's been resonating with me a ton. And I'm more and more and more convinced that we know certain things, but we don't take action on them because our heart's not connected. So tell me about that, like that emotion, the, the hair standing up on your arms as you see these fighters and that driving you forwards into your dreams. Tell me a little bit more about that connection that you made even back then, but that potentially how that's guided you since that point. Yeah, you know, I've been doing a lot of research about just where do your thoughts come from, right? And it's an interesting question. You know, if you think about where does a thought come from? And there's a lot of studies out there that, you know, they can come from seeds. And I love that thought that there's a seed that's planted and that seed needs to be watered and nurtured put in the right soil. There's all kinds of scripture around this kind of stuff, but philosophy too. And then someday it, it ripens, right? And we know that through plants. I think that's exactly what happened to me. So it's not a metaphor. I mean, it's real to me. You know, I think what happened was all these seeds were being planted in my heart though, not my head, right? And you could feel it. You could feel that something was pulling me there because there was other seeds planted too. Like I wanted to play pro football. Well, I wasn't big enough and fast enough. So, you know, I played college, but not pro. But the seed for the fighter jet was so strong. And I think what I did was I nurtured that. It wasn't like from that moment, every thought was about that. No, you know, I was a typical kid going to school, playing sports, but I never let go of that dream. And I think it's because the seed was deeply planted in my heart and not my head. It wasn't just an intellectual concept. Yeah, that's awesome. And I'm interested how you use that to overcome the obstacles that must have popped up on your path to being in that cockpit for the first time, getting to, you know, you said it was 18 years between the time that you saw those planes and you were actually sitting in the cockpit. So were there any moments on that path that were huge obstacles, failures, where you thought it was all falling apart or the universe was challenging your commitment and that you ultimately overcame to get into that space? Oh, absolutely. And I think that's everybody's journey, really, if you think back to it. It's also the metaphor of the hero, right? Going out and trying to save the world and overcoming obstacles. But in this case, for me, it was, you know, it's not a little ones, but the big one came when I tried to get into college. So I knew that if I wanted to fly jets, I needed, well, not didn't have to go, but I wanted to go to the academies and, uh, you know, the Naval Academy, Air Force Academy, this kind of thing. So I worked hard in, in high school, you know, got good grades, played football, all that kind of stuff. But when it came time to apply, you got to go through this application process, like any college, right? But you have to get a letter of nomination. I got a presidential letter. And then all of a sudden, there's this physical. And it's a typical physical. So I take the physical and, and I kick butt on the running parts and all the physical stuff, but there's the medical side. So anyhow, I put in this application, everything's looking good. I get a letter back and it says, you're disqualified. And I was like, what? And they said, I was disqualified medically. So this is weird. I'm like, well, wonder why. I'm a you know, 17-year-old kid. I'm playing football. I'm wrestling. I'm, I'm as healthy as I think I can be. 
And this is what it said. It said, you have too much protein in your urine. Now I go, first off, what the heck is that? And second off, what am I supposed to do about it, right? And so the first thing that hit me was disappointment. I think that hit, happens to all of us in life, right? And it was pretty solid. And then my dad was really cool. He goes, well, let's, let's just reapply. Just don't take a no, you know, reapply. So I reapply and sure enough, I get rejected again. Now I got to come up with plan C, right? I already tried plan B, reapplied. And plan C was, okay, I need a medical waiver process. And I remember thinking that I was kind of moping around for about a week, like, oh, I'm not going to be able to get the academies and, you know, my dream's gone. And then I said, wait a minute, it's not about the academies. There's other paths to becoming a pilot and come up with a different path. So I ended up applying to Colorado. I got in and walked on, played football. My whole goal there was just continue on the path for a year and then reapply. And I did. I went through a medical waiver process, ended up getting approved. It turns out that protein in my urine, you may know better than anybody. I think it was just from cutting weight on wrestling. It just happened I was cutting a lot of weight that time. But at the end of the day, I'm glad it all happened to me. And here's why. I had applied to the Air Force Academy and that's who rejected me. Well, it turns out the Blue Angels are actually Navy. See, I'd applied to the wrong team. And I think the universe was telling me, wait a minute, you don't want to go to the Air Force. You need to go to Annapolis, which I ended up doing. And it turned out that once I got into Annapolis, of course, there's a long road to becoming a Blue Angel pilot. But that was just one of the obstacles I had to overcome. That's incredible that the universe seems to just slam you in that direction and remind you of, you know, just make sure you're not making that mistake. You actually need to be over there and go to Annapolis. What was it like when you walked into Annapolis and you began your training? And, and tell me a little bit about your preparation and what they taught you and how that training looked for the next little while. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. The plebes are there right now. It's July. And so the new classes are there. We call them plebes. And it's, it's hell. You know, they put you through hell for six weeks or as long as they can. And then the academics start. For me, you see, it was actually fun because I had a passion. I wanted to do it. The other thing, you know, I'd grown up, my dad had gone to West Point. He was an instructor at West Point. So as a little kid, I remember watching the cadets march and stuff. And it was something that I aspired to, right? So I knew it would be hard work, but what the heck, that's what it takes. I also was glad I went to Colorado for a year because I had fun, man. Freshman in college, co-ed, playing football, man. I had a lot of fun, ate a lot of pizza. Didn't study too much. And luckily- I have no idea what you're talking about. Exactly. It was not like that at all when I was in college. <laughs> <laughs> luckily, I got most of that out of my system because I'm not sure I would have graduated if I'd stayed there, to be honest with you. But when I went to Annapolis, you got to buckle down, right? So the bottom line is Annapolis is about academic. It's an engineering school. You can take other stuff, but I took mechanical engineering. And you have military commitments. You have athletic commitments. I played Division One college football. And you're busy, man. You're getting up at 545 and they've got you booked till, you know, midnight. And then you got to stay up late studying. So it was a challenge. What was really cool about that, though, is it opened up your perspective. You know, I got so much perspective other than just the academics. And I think football was a really big part of my life. And I learned a lot about teamwork. I learned a lot about pushing yourself beyond what you think you can do. You know, I'm a small guy. I only weigh 170 pounds, 5'9", and playing Division One college football with all the big guys. And I realized that you got to reset your beliefs. So anyhow, learned a lot like that. How did you reset some of your beliefs and gain that new perspective? And the reason why I ask is it just appears to me that right now, 
I constantly see people who are stuck in one way of seeing the world. And I love travel. I've been to 52 countries. I think that that was what helped me to open up my perspective. I'm trying to do the same thing with my kids right now. But how did going to Annapolis and being part of sports, military, academics, that must have been a pretty incredible environment that, and I love what you said about just sort of like resetting, pushing beyond your limits. At that time, how did things expand and shift your mindset? Yeah, you know what? I think it comes in incremental pieces too, right? And so as I think back, you know, I like to talk about the first step of trying to achieve your goals. I call it diamond performance. It's a framework. But you know, in strategic management theory, we all know vision, plan, execute, feedback loop. That's pretty standard. You know, what's the vision? Come up with a plan, execute on the plan. Hopefully you have a feedback loop. Not everybody does, by the way. And that's usually the weak spot. I think that's same with what we're talking about. So to me, a vision is really built around belief levels, okay? You know, what do you believe that you're capable of? What do you believe your company's capable of? What do you believe your team's capable of? These are core beliefs, and they're already in your mind. As you and I are talking, they're there, right? You already, and so do I, have set beliefs in my mind. So the question you're asking is, okay, well, how do you raise those? And I think that's a powerful question. And I think you do it through a process. You got to do it through a process. It doesn't happen just once. For me, if I think back to the academy and then being in the Navy, flying jets off aircraft carriers, I was put into an environment that forced me to raise my beliefs. I mean, around me were people who were also extremely gifted and challenged and the environment made you get better. I had a football coach that said, you're either getting better or you're getting worse. I used to hate it on the field because I was always, you know, tired. But I thought, you know, he's right. I mean, am I getting better every single day? And so for me, part of the belief levels is, is the environment that you either put yourself in or you get thrust into. And then comes your ability to focus, right? And the ability to really block out, I think compartmentalization is even more important. Block out what's not important so that you can focus on what is important. I think you have to take action. See, it's not enough to, in my mind, to do these beliefs just intellectually. You got to physically absorb these. So you got to take action and you got to learn from your actions. And that's the most critical part is this debrief that I call where you go in and you reflect not just on what went well, but also, you know, what you could do better. And then you realize that, oh, you know what? I can reset my beliefs. And then it's an incremental spiraling up process. At least that's how I do it. My question is, how do you do it? I'm the one doing the interviewing, John. You're not allowed to ask me questions. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's cool. So what I have done lately, because there's been a lot of ups and a lot of downs, is when faced with a challenge and failure, and there have been a lot of failures, is doing a fairly hard, real deconstruction of what happened. I really need to understand why is this happening, not just from my perspective, but from the perspective of others. Why are they acting the way that they're, they are? Why are they saying the things that they're saying? Why didn't that work out? And what I've discovered is that the vast majority of the time, even though I project outwards, it's my responsibility. And I discover through that process what I have done well and what I didn't do well. And that ultimately, I've, in most cases, I've found out that I'm responsible. If it goes well, that's great. And if it hasn't gone well, it's also my, I'll call it my fault even though I don't think of it as a fault, it's an opportunity. And then I try to reverse engineer what I want to achieve 
and start at the end and work backwards. And I think that that came from swimming when I was growing up. I was a competitive swimmer and raced sort of up to the international level. And we would start with, okay, I've got Olympic trials in two years and I've three week taper before that. And then I need a six, you know, 12 week block of anaerobic work and like literally work backwards two years. And that's the process that I've been trying to run as much as possible in my life these days in leading my kids through that as well. And also doing that as a family with Judith. So it's a similar process where the debrief has been huge. And I learned that from you a couple of years ago and thinking about that glad to be here attitude that the Blue Angels have, which is that everything's always positive. So that's the way that I run it. Wow. You connected so strong on a couple of points. Let me hit that last one real quick about the glad to be here because that's huge. That attitude of gratefulness, which by the way, I had learned in my family even before the Blue Angels, but in the Blues, we actually took it to another level by in the debrief, our last comment after we go around doing exactly what you just said, deconstructing what happened, right? And we would do that immediately after the air show. Well, right after the air show, first thing we do is get with our maintenance troops and do a very quick debrief about the jet, what's broke, what's not, so that they can go and start working on it, right? Then we would go to the crowd line and we would sign autographs. And that was my favorite part of the whole show, right? It wasn't even the flying. It was going to the crowd line, seeing the look in the little kid's eyes, you know, looks of hopes and dreams, the same thing I probably had in my eyes at 12. That's what pumped me up. That's what got me up every single morning was that I was doing a job that made a difference and inspired other people and specifically kids, which is so cool. But then we would go into the debriefing room and that was very professional and it was intense. And we would deconstruct the air show in minute detail, but we'd start first with the general safe. Generally, how do you feel? And were you out of parameters? Safety was, are you out of parameters in anything? And that was a powerful thing. I teach this in business and you just don't see it enough, I don't think is first connecting with people in a general way before getting into the specifics you know, of the project and all that kind of stuff. Because you'll find out what's on their mind. And anyhow, you would say a general statement like, I enjoyed the air show, or I didn't, right? A lot of times people are not happy with what happened. So my whole point is that while we went through that deconstruction and actually very much looked at what could we do better, we always, always ended in a positive mindset, which was glad to be here. And that I think is significant because otherwise these deconstructions can become a negative spiral sometimes and you want to turn them into a positive spiral. And, you know, I love what you said about looking at it and looking inward to yourself first, instead of pointing the finger at somebody else. I love the analogy. When you point a finger at somebody, three of them are pointing back at you, right? And to me, that's the key, right? So I want to take a breath, but let's talk more about that because what you did and what you said about it actually is coming from us, not at us, I think is a critical element to talk deeper about. Yeah, I agree. And it's painful and sometimes really, really uncomfortable. And one of the ways that I think that people might be able to lean into this a little bit more is when you think about what makes you uncomfortable, what makes you angry, what makes you frustrated, what bothers you, that's a great place to lean in because that's where the insights are going to come from. And if you can lean into that without blaming and lean into that and use it as a way of self-reflection with that glad to be here mindset, like I'm really fortunate that let's say you're arguing with a family member and they've said something that really made you feel uncomfortable. Instead of reacting and snapping back, 
question then becomes, can you step away, think about it for some time, maybe that night, maybe over the next little while, and think about like, why did that actually make me feel the way that it did? And deconstruct that from your perspectives that when you re-engage, it's a positive thing, not a negative thing. And I'm sure for you guys in the blues, when you're up there and you're flying, I'd love to hear a little bit more about the actual, what it's like to be up there in that team, in that environment, so close together at unbelievable speeds where a mistake can kill someone, not just make someone frustrated or upset. That's an opportunity for you to re-engage in a way that's positive and constructive and can actually move you forward. And it's not easy. Like, let's just be clear, none of this that we're talking about is easy. It's actually brutally hard, but it's a completely different way of living. Steve, thanks for joining me on the show. Greg, it's awesome to be here. Thanks for, uh, thanks for the invite. Uh, so I just mentioned uh, before we got started, uh, we're finding ourselves on opposite ends of Canada. Where, uh, where, where are you spending your time these days? I'm in Halifax uh, two days ago. Like it is, it's close to St. Patrick's Day. Right. Well, on the day we're recording, if I can just open That's right. that up. Yep, Three totally. days ago, we were golfing in Nova Scotia, 17 degrees, although it's minus 10 today. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. I cannot <laughs> wait to get back out on the golf course. It is warming up uh, here as well. Speaking of Halifax, one of the things that I noticed um, on your blog was that you opened you tried opening up a lot of doors in Halifax. Tell me about that. Yeah, it was a social experiment we did probably four or five years ago. And, uh, you know, you're always trying to do something that's really going to capture someone's attention. Had no idea. It really got a lot of, uh, of media coverage as well, too. But the idea was we went to uh, a couple office buildings, a couple shopping centers, and a couple coffee shops. And I just opened the door for 100 people and counted how many people said thank you. And... Um, 99 out of 100 said thank you. And so it was kind of neat. And uh, the most people, if you can imagine, are interested in the one. Yeah. What about that person? Right? That's that's what, you know, anything. What do you think about that person that that didn't say thank you? Yeah. And, um, you know, for me, Greg, on any given day, that could have been me. Right. Who knows what's going on in that person's life. Right. And so for me to judge, if I was doing it, expecting a thank you, and I'm big about gratitude, if I was doing it, expecting a a thank you, then that that isn't given freely. Right. Right. If I if I if I'm expecting something back and so do it freely. And um, anyhow, people of Halifax, (laughs) pretty good in terms of expressing appreciation for a door. I think we might get a open. different result in downtown Toronto, but that's, uh, that's another conversation. It'd be interesting to do. Uh, I, you know, just my trips to big cities, Toronto included, people are friendly. You know, when something is happening, it's, it's easy to, to not see things though in a city, right? It really right. is. That's, that's the thing. We don't see it uh, or we block it out coping mechanisms that we'd use. So. Interesting. Talk to me a little bit about that, because I'm intrigued by your your thought about expecting the thank you versus whether it happens or not. I have no expectations. How does that change? How does that change the experience of, let's say, quote unquote, opening a door for someone else? Okay, Um, it, it, it could be opening a door. It could be letting someone in in traffic that's trying to get in in a busy life. It could, it could be anything that we do for somebody else. It could be giving them a gift, bringing uh, flowers home for my wife, you know, uh, could, anything. When I expect something back, 
a thank you or anything, then it's no longer a gift because I've got conditions attached to it. So if I'm giving something freely, and if I want somebody to experience gratitude, we experience gratitude. Let's get into a little science here. We experience gratitude, you and the listener, when you receive something that is of value to you, that you you make sense of it, this is valuable to me, you interpret that it cost something, whoever provided it to you or whatever, that it costs something to somebody and it was given freely, no strings attached. If you make sense of it in any way that, oh, that was that didn't cost them any, it was easy, it cost them money, time, whatever it is, it didn't cost them anything, they want something back or it's not valuable to me, guess what? I won't be grateful, right? The, the receiver won't be grateful. So I'm driving down the street in Halifax, not far from my house, where it's, you know, it's the one place where I'm going to get traffic and there's two lanes of traffic, everyone on the inside waiting in the line. And then the people that speed up in the outside lane and try to turn in and, you know, and so it's like, okay, I'm going to let the guy in. I let the guy in. If I get upset because he doesn't give me a wave or anything, was I doing it to help him or was I doing it? to make me feel good. I was looking for some sort of validation, right? Because if I do that, then I'm not doing it freely, right? And same thing with holding a door. And so if I really want to give freely, right? And when I do that, I, I call that saying thank you. And if I'm truly saying thank you because I'm grateful, I got to do that with no strings attached. It's just like love. When you love someone unconditionally, right? Do you require them to love you back? If it's unconditional, it's not. That's a cool idea. I've all, and I've always said the ability to receive a gift is almost more important than the ability to, to give one. Does that make sense? Totally does. It, it, with your permission, a quick story. I'm having coffee with uh, Kendra. Kendra was introduced to me by a friend of mine, Bob, who um, I knew gratitude. I introduced him to gratitude, and that's how he connected. And uh, it just, it, it really made a difference to him. And he tells me that all the time. So I, I meet Kendra for the very first time, halfway into our conversation, maybe 15, 20 minutes. You know, she says, and Bob, who connected us, you know what? He's told me, you've made a huge difference in his and she stops mid-sentence. You're looking away. You, you are uncomfortable that I'm telling you this. <laughs> she, Greg, she calls me out on it on the spot. And it's like, whoa, you're right. We each have to stand in our greatness. Not to brag or boast or because shying away from it is as bad as standing up thinking that you're better than you are, right? No one, none of us is any, we're all awesome human beings. And to, you're right. So being able to accept and receive that is, uh, it, it can be challenging for us. Yeah. Yeah. It can be really hard. How can we stand in our greatness <clears throat> more easily? And I, I'm thinking back to a moment I was at a conference and one of the exercises we did at the conference was that we were in a table of eight and you got to stand up on the chair and you got to take a standing ovation from the other people at your table for 60 seconds. And that was brutal. Like it's not easy to, to sit there and be like, 
Thank you for, for, for nothing, like literally nothing, right? You see, it's an eight minute exercise eight, and you, you swap out every minute and someone else gets up and you give them the standing ovation, right? But to stand there and to take a standing ovation, and believe me, I'm definitely one who would be able to take that standing ovation. My ego would love it, but it was not an easy thing to do. So I'm curious about that thinking around like stand in your greatness and that's okay super cool idea yeah um if someone was to ask you what are your weaknesses most of us can will we'll easily and publicly you know unless we're in a job interview we'll yeah. say oh yeah I'm, I'm i'm not good at uh you know following through or whatever the case is uh what are your strengths what are the things that you are that you're the best at those are the things that we're we're least likely to talk about and those are the things that we we tend not to spend time on and uh but if we can see those things right being welcoming being a good communicator right i'm just like we don't know each other really well yeah. those are two of your biggest strengths and this is from a short interaction. So you know, if you can see these gifts that you have, and so if you see your talents as gifts, right? What do you do when you receive a gift? You're, th you're grateful, you're thankful, and to, to almost to be able to step back. And this is a mindset more than anything, I think, Greg, is to have a mindset that, oh, yeah, um, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm really hospitable and welcoming and, uh, I'm a really good communicator to just see that objectively as if I, yeah, I drive a red car just to like, I drive a red car. I'm a good, like whatever the case is, and right. when you can see it as a gift and then it's like, okay, this is a gift. I got to take care of it. How can I hone it? How can I like, cause if, imagine a, 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 an heirloom, a gift passed from generation to generation. What do you, I want to make sure that I give this to my kids or my next generation. And the same thing with the skills and the gifts we have. And so being aware of what our gifts are so that we can, I, that's what I call standing in our greatness with them. I love it. How do we build better awareness of our gifts? I'm just writing that down because it's an interesting idea. How do we get that sort of, almost, you know, third party overview of ourselves oh. to see, you know, and be able to like, okay, well, that's cool. I'm good at that and accept it and be grateful for it with no expectations. It's an interesting thought exercise as to how we get that perspective. Right. Clifton's strength finder, like a lot of the psychometric and, and even psychometric testing can uncover some of those gifts, you know, in a very pragmatic level, just ask you and, and for you listening, if I was to ask you right now, think of uh, a high-performing team that you were part of. Greg, you know, th even for you, like right now, let's just demonstrate this for the listener. Think of a high-performing team that you were a part of. You got one in mind? Yeah, we climbed a mountain, Chimborazo, a couple years ago. There was myself, a doc from Sick Kids, two of my former grad students and three people from Europe. And we just absolutely, like all of us reached our limits on Chimborazo. It's 20,000 foot peak in Ecuador. Um, unbelievably difficult, quite probably quite dangerous. Um, but yeah, it was a really amazing experience. We all 
got along great, pushed ourselves to limits, supported each other a ton, had a blast. It was an entirely positive, horribly frightening experience, but very good. What was it about that team that made it that high performing team? You said a couple things there, but what what just what were the key attributes of that team that made it a high performing team? Uh, unconditional support would be the one that pops into my brain. Like no matter what, you've got you've got each other's back, right? Yeah. Number two, happy, positive, joking, no negativity, no complaining. Great. Okay, so for the listener, Greg just described to you some of his top strengths. Right. That's one of the ways we do it. I, and I want to say that with ninety-seven percent certainty. Wow, that just blows my mind. Okay, right? So right, and it's like it's like a backhanded <clears throat> way into because there. If I would have said, Greg, what are your what are what are some of your top strengths? Does that ring true to you? Yeah, one hundred percent. Yes, right. So when we what you did, you looked at that team very objectively. But what you did, you looked at it through your lens, through your eyes, because those are in you. Those gifts are in you. Boom, you can see them so, so clearly in that team. Someone else on the team who has some different skills might have said some different things, right? That brought different things to it. I'm totally emailing them all after this and seeing what they say. <laughs> this is going to be a really good experiment this afternoon. What's the difference between gratitude in individuals and gratitude in teams? Like, how does that play out? Because I noticed that that's some of your work, some of your writing is just around teamwork and I've always been curious because for me, a gratitude practice is relatively easy. For me to guide my daughter through a gratitude practice is relatively easy. But to cultivate gratitude in a group of people, I imagine would be more challenging. So how does that play out? It really is a, an individual activity that in terms of I can't make anyone else grateful. I, you know, I can't make my kids, my wife, I, I work on me and, um, and, and it's not because I'm broken or anything. That's, it's just, it's just this mat. It's a journey that we're on, but through that we influence others. Mm. What I've discovered though, is that when we, when we do practice or bring our gratitude into a team or a community, it takes it to a totally another, a totally different level. Um, and, and the reason for it, I believe, is because, well, we're humans, we like this connection, uh, but it's a way to receive inspiration with no agenda attached to it. And so, and, and what does this look like? Okay, so if I go into an organization, okay, how are we going to start our meetings? Let's go around the table. Each person share one thing they're grateful for. Well, you can think, okay, really? Do that? Yeah, do that. If, if you got eight people, it might take three minutes, four minutes. Uh, if it's a really difficult meeting, make it take eight minutes. Uh, take longer to do that. Set the right tone. You might get it to say, okay, what we're going to do is I'm going to say one thing I'm grateful for about someone else on the table. And we're going to ping pong around the room. No one gets picked twice. So everyone gets edified. Everyone gets to hear everyone being edified and uplifted. And the magic thing that happens there is the day that I go in and I'm not feeling it. Like, cause life happens, right? I'm, I'm all up repeat right now. I'm positive. You're positive, right? It's like, it could be, I'm not always like this. I have days where it doesn't feel like, oh man, do I really got to do, and this is what I do for a living. Do I got to do yeah. this? <laughs> 
when you hear it coming out of the mouths of others, right? It And no one there in that room is saying, Steve, you should be grateful for this or this, but they say something and it triggers, boom. And do you know what? It's a pers- community helps give us perspective. And I, I like to, I really, I encourage people not to use comparison to find gratitude because then it makes it conditional. If, oh, I'm better, you know, I'm glad that we have healthcare and they don't have or what. Got it. Right. Because then gratitude becomes, uh, you know, conditional. I don't, I, if that's how you have to find it, that's okay. But um, it perspective is what it gives us when we are able to do it in community. And that makes it last longer. So think of, um, you know, when I, when I first met you and you were broadcasting on at the Olympics, um, you know, they talked about, um, you know, a, a swim team where everyone on the team pretty much swam on their own other than one race, but there's still a team because they're able to uplift support. There's other things that are going to happen to make that t- the individuals in the team perform at a higher level because they're in a team, not just all by themselves. Um, so I can't believe you brought that example up because on my notepad next to us right here, I have written swim team, Randy Bennett. That was my <laughs> next, that was literally my next comment. That is mind blowing. So in preparation for the 2012 Olympics, um, I was with the national swim team in Europe on a tour and Randy, I was taking blood. Um, and that sort of stuff. But Randy Bennett, who was the coach at the time, the late, great Randy Bennett was the coach at the time. And every day for our team meeting, the whole team, 30 people would go around and say one thing that they were grateful for that someone else had done for them. And didn't matter how big it was, what it was. But, and I was like, this is a weird practice. I'd never, this 10 years ago, I'd never, 12 years ago, I'd never seen it, never heard of it. And um, that simple exercise, which as you said, took five minutes max because it was like they picked up my kickboard they hand me a water bottle like micro stuff had a huge impact on changing the attitude i would say improving the attitude of the team i'll leave it there pete thanks for joining me greg it's great to be here looking forward to the conversation so i would love to hear the origin story obviously um from what i understand it started during a blackout but uh that i think will lead us into a good conversation around human connection. I've been speaking loads about that. We've had it taken away for the last little while. Needs to rebuild it in our lives. So this couldn't be more relevant, but would love to hear how it all got started. Yeah. And thanks for the opportunity, Greg. It's great to have this conversation. So if you flash back 2003, August 14th uh, or 13th, 410 in the afternoon, power goes out to 50 million people on the Eastern seaboard. I'm working at a beer company at the time out at the airport and I make my way home as everybody did lights off, you know, tough to get the car home, finally made it home and jumped on my bike to ride down Young Street. You see the beauty of the human species in times of crisis, people directing traffic, handing out water, ice cream, you know, checked on my loved ones. I had an elderly mom at the time. Later on that evening, I I got home and rode over to a friend's house for a barbecue. And that barbecue started with two, then went to 10, then it went to 20 as everybody started to come and gather. And at nine o'clock at night, I went out on the front porch and the street was packed. And I thought it was such a beautiful thing to see so many people coming together on the street. And I just made the assumption that everybody knew each other. So I walked out onto the street and I said, hey, this is really cool. You guys all know each other. And all the neighbors looked at me and went, 
no, we don't. And I, it was right that moment, Greg, that I thought to myself, wouldn't it be great if we could actually build more connection without waiting for a crisis to come? And yeah. that truly is what the inspiration behind this movement was all about. Initially, it was about our two weekends a year when research shows that people struggle with building connection, which is seasonal transition, or they struggle with seasonal transition itself. But then what we've recognized over time is that, you know, we were starting with the end game, which is getting people connected. And I think what we'll talk about most today is the fact that most of us have no idea about how important human connection is for our happiness, our health, our longevity and the betterment of society. And we need to go back to the start. So we've really focused our attention more so in the last couple of years on educating 38 million Canadians on just how important this is. That's fantastic. And we do know probably now more than maybe we have thought about it in quite some time about the power of human connection, having just been through a global pandemic where we've had to social distance. And by the way, I'm a fan of that. I think we needed to do it and it served sure. its purpose. And now we need to reconnect with people and rebuild those dream teams, rebuild those connections, rebuild those that sense of community because um, we haven't, we have not had it. And um, you mentioned walking around your neighborhood. I walked around my neighborhood recently. And I don't, there's many new families there who moved in during the pandemic. I have no idea who they are. I've never seen them before. So I'm like, yeah, I'm Greg, we live across the street, never seen you. What's going on here? So I'd love to hear about your perspective on the importance of, of social connection. Why is it so meaningful to us? Why is it so critical? Yeah, it's so interesting. And let me, I'll just say that I'm not sure we understand the power of human connection. I think we understand what we lost, i.e. what mm -hmm. was missing. And I'm not even sure we articulated as I missed people. We say we missed the office. We missed going to the gym. We missed, you know, many of the activities that we did with people. But I don't think we are conscious that it's actually, you didn't fall, you didn't miss the office, i.e. the office or the cubicle or the lunchroom, well, you did miss the lunchroom, but it was actually yeah. about the people. And right. so this, this is where I think we're starting, Greg, which is really helping people understand. Here's just some of the, the facts around human connection. Single largest indicator of happiness in our lives, that's Robert Waldinger, Harvard, I'm sure you know that well, um, reduces anxiety and depression, which, uh, as I understand it, the highest levels in Canadian history coming out of the global pandemic. And so, but we've never educated people on it. Uh, strengthens your immune system and your self-confidence, both things that I think as we come out of the global pandemic, we're going to need to work on. Uh, creates empathy, compassion, and resilience. And in a world that seems at times so disconnected from one another, the way we will build those bonds is by spending time with people so we can understand them, we can be empathetic and compassionate towards the challenges that they may have or their support of the challenges that we may have. Increases your chances of living longer by up to 50%. A study out of Boston University um, and Massachusetts General during the global pandemic, the single greatest preventative action to avoid depression. And finally, I'll say one of the greatest preventative and treatments for anxiety. So if we're looking for some of the solutions to the challenges that I think are skyrocketing, not just in our youth, but across the board, then we need to make sure that we educate people. We've been educated on physical activity for over 50 years. We've had guidelines. We've had the eating guidelines, the Canadian Food Guide since 1942. But we now know that human connection is a greater impact to your health and well-being than physical activity. And we haven't spent one minute educating people on this information. So as a physiologist, it breaks my heart to know that there is something that is more powerful than physical activity, but you are correct. Mm -hmm. There's some research that was published in 
2017 that um, uh, highlights the the relationship between social connection and mortality risk. And social connection was a higher predictor of lower rates of mortality. So the more connected you were, the lower your rate of mortality than quitting smoking, than doing cardiac rehab after a heart attack, than quitting drinking, than quitting smoking, and more than physical activity. Like it is incredibly powerful. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And let's be clear in, in support of your comments there, Greg, I am not anti all the other things we know about sleep. Yeah, we know absolutely. about uh, water. We know about exercise. We know about eating well. I just think we have this gap. And if we know how powerful it is, you know, and, and I really do. And we've certainly, we just got a grant from the Canadian government through CIHR for $750,000 to create the guidelines for social connection. So step in the right direction. But at some point, the Genwell project as the, what I'll call the knowledge translation movement that's trying to awaken 38 million people, we need to find the businesses. We need to find the philanthropists. We need to find the medical people who are saying, hey, these guys are doing great work. How can we help spread this message in our offices, in our classrooms and across this country? Because we need it to get into people's hands right now, not six years or 10 years from now, because that tends to be the amount of time for a prevention movement to start taking traction in society. Love it. Well, you're very, uh, I, I'll, I'll, I'm, people are listening and we're very fortunate in this particular community, in this podcast, I feel a lot of people in the UK and a lot of people in Australia and New Zealand, um, a few in the States, obviously lots in Canada. So we can share this message a little bit more globally even, which is super exciting. But I would love to know from your perspective, like how do we fill this gap? How do we begin to get people aware of the importance of social connection? And more importantly, how do we build it? What should we be shooting for? What are we aiming to create? Well, as I, as I, as I touch on in all the work that we do, it literally starts with education. If we're talking about behavior change, if you don't understand what we're talking about and all the different places in which social connection can come, we've done two years of research in Canada. We just wrapped up the second year of the Canadian Social Connection Survey. And there's so many amazing little tidbits that come out of the research. You know, talking to strangers once a week increase your likelihood of being happy by three times. But yet, what have we Really? Yeah. Yeah. What oh are we talking cool. for 50 years? Don't don't talk to strangers. So if we can start educating, talking to your neighbor, pre-pandemic, 50% of Canadians didn't know their next door neighbor's name. Yet the research shows if you know your neighbor's first, actually, it's if you know your neighbor, if you have a relationship with your neighbor, um, it reduces your sense of loneliness by three times. Relationships with fellow colleagues has the same impact to your reduced loneliness and increased happiness as connections with your family and friends because we spend so much time in the workplace. And so as we're going through the hybrid work world and we hear so many people saying, I never want to go back to the office, I think we're uneducated on what the relationships at that office and that workplace. And of course, there are places that didn't do a good job at giving that sense of connection and community and belonging in the workplace. And I think every workplace needs to get more serious on building that sense of connection and belonging for their employees. But we all need to do it, whether it's in our home, on our street, in our community, we all play a role in solving for this. And the opportunity we have to share this message through podcasts like this, through opportunities, through the media, uh, interviews, different things like that. Obviously, getting it into curriculum, every one of us can play a role in helping spread this message as quickly as possible. 
I love it. What are some practical tactics that we can use to become more connected? You mentioned talk to your neighbors, uh, talk to people that you don't know. What else can we do to rebuild this sense of connection in today's world? Yeah, I think it's, you know, again, educating ourselves is step one. Number two, prioritizing it. We all put our going to the gym in the, you know, in, in the work you do. Put the gym in your calendar so that you do it. You know, put things that in that are regular. If you have a friend, maybe make a static uh, appointment every week to go for coffee. So you have a baseline in there. You know you're going to get some connection. And if you start to build on top of that, that's beautiful. I play hockey three times a week. I know I'm going to see 60 of my buddies every week at different times throughout the course of the week. Everything above that is a bonus. And what yeah. would I think? What I think we know by now, Greg, is two years of Zoom meetings. Zoom meetings are a great supplement to human interaction, but they can't replace the human interactions that make us happier, healthier, and live longer. So I think just prioritizing it and being more conscious and intentional about making human connection happen in our lives, just like we think about, you know, if I don't get my eight glasses of water, I think about it. If I don't get eight hours of sleep, I think about it. When I don't get my exercise, I think about it. We need to be as intentional and conscious about social connection as well. Maybe if we were thinking about like eight hours of sleep and eight glasses of water, perhaps we could also then think about, you know, who are the eight people that we need to spend more time with in the coming months and uh, deliberately reach out and connect with those people and give them a call or set up a coffee or just split them a quick text message or anything like that to, to spark the move forwards. It's a it's a great it's a great uh, great point. Uh, Robin Dunbar out of the UK, uh, Dunbar's number you might be familiar with it. He ultimately says four to five is the number of close friends that we all want to have on hand. Should we go through a challenging time? So who are your fab four? Mm. Who are your you know favorite five? Those are the people that we all need to uh, make sure we have those contacts and we have regular occasions so that we feel connected to those people. And part of the research that we're doing with GenWell right now through the Social, Conne uh, Social Connection Survey is helping people understand how frequently do you need to connect with those people to maintain that level of connection. The guidelines will talk about friends, family, neighbors, colleagues, classmates, multi-generational relationships, all the different ways in which we can slice and dice this really important information to make it easy, uh, consumable for consumers to just look at it and go, oh, I can do that. I could do that. Well, that's an easy one. I could talk to strangers, you know, all these little things that if we can just bring people a little uh, higher in their conscious level and consciousness level, I think we can make a huge change in society. And wouldn't it be beautiful, Greg, if every time you walk down the street, people started saying, hey, how you doing? You know, yeah. aren't you the guy that lives over there? Aren't you the person? Didn't I see you at the office the other day? Like, I think we all desire and crave this type of human connection. We are social animals. I think we just need to give. And Dr. Quam McKenzie from the Wellesley Institute said this to me five years ago. He said, you're going to be very successful at this movement because what you do is you give people permission. Once they understand how important it is, whether it's in a workplace or a classroom or maybe on a street because they host a Genwell weekend, you give people the okay to, to knock on their neighbor's door or to say hello to a fellow colleague. And, and a lot of us, a lot of the reason we don't connect is inside our own heads because when we get inside our own heads, we don't tend to be very kind to ourselves and yeah. it prevents is from oftentimes reaching out and building those connections. Yeah, I just think about like how we speak to ourselves. If you ever spoke to someone else that way, 
<laughs> never talk to again sometimes, right? So um, that's a that's an interesting point. One of the things I've been playing with lately is just um, when someone says, uh, when I greet someone at a store, someone like, how are you today? Or like, how are you? Or whatever. I'm like, I am fantastic. <laughs> like, what? It's like, yeah. yeah, no, I just like changed up a little bit, right? How are you? I'm actually really awesome today. Because they've never heard that before. It completely throws them for a loop. So you can do all sorts of different ways just to make things interesting and connect with people a little bit differently. Well, and look what we've done. Like if you think back to your parents and certainly parents today, like when you're when your kid looks at you, when you do that uh, in the store and your kid looks up and goes, Dad, cut it out. You look like a crazy person. Which they do, for the record. (laughs) What what, what have we done to ourselves when we, every time somebody does show happiness or, you know, joy in their life, that we actually slap them down, whether it's our kids or other people, it's like, oh, that guy's weird. It's like, no, that guy's actually trying to change the world by sharing a positive attitude and changing everybody's day because everybody you do that to goes, hey, that was pretty cool. That guy is pretty funny. And yeah. I think that's, um, that's what we're trying to achieve. Not to make this all about me, which is what I tend to do on these interviews. But when, I'm, when I've been saying thank you, when, someone's, when I say thank you um, at the store or whatever, when you get something, I'm there with my kids. I'll say, thank you. You're the best. I really appreciate that. And so I've been saying that constantly. And people are like, huh, that's, thank you for saying I'm the best or whatever. But like Ingrid one day looked at me and said, dad, you tell everyone they're the best. I'm like, yeah, I know. That's how it, what it, we do. She's like, that's really weird. I'm like, ah, what, onward. But she noticed, right? And it's just like really just trying to pump, pump, pump people up and tell them they're awesome, doing a great job, really appreciate it. All those little things make a difference. Kind of like what you're doing with Genwell. So I'd love to know more about your movement and uh, what you're trying to create. Well, really what we're trying to create is a national movement across Canada, 38 million Canadians. And we say we do three things. We educate, we empower, and we catalyze. It's really, you know, built on a behavior change model, which says, look, if we can educate 38 million Canadians through our social posts, through our uh, website, we just launched a social health assessment tool at genwellproject.org. People can go and do their own assessment. And the assessment is based against the Canadian Social Connection Survey. So it will give you a sense of how you are doing with your social health and making sure that we're all aware. And no matter what your score is, we're going to give you some ideas on how you can either improve it, or if you're off the charts and everything's wonderful in your life, maybe it's about helping you recognize the role you can play like you do, Greg, when you go into that store, when you say hello to your neighbor, when you call up somebody who you know is going through you know, divorce, job loss, financial pressure, ch- kid problems. Like, you know, life, we always, somebody said to me on a, a CBC interview once, he said, what stigma are you fighting? I said, mm-hmm. the stigma of life. We are fighting the fact that we all go through ups and downs in life. I don't care who you are. And if we can all be more conscious and intentional to say, hey, I know Greg went through a tough day at work last week, or I know somebody today, funny enough, I reached out to somebody who I know was going through a strike situation in their workplace. And so, you know, just being more conscious and intentional that that simple phone call can make all the difference in the world to that individual, but also to the person that's uh, on the street who's you know homeless or to somebody who's food insecure 90 percent of new moms over 50 percent of ceos and entrepreneurs say they feel lonely and isolated 76 percent of students at universities say they feel lonely and isolated on a regular basis i don't care who you are we have all felt it 
And so the reality, and it's not, a lot of people think, Greg, it's social isolation. So it's about the physical lack of presence of people. But I think oftentimes what we're trying to help people better understand is that sense of belonging. You can be surrounded. You could be at the office. You could be, you know, in your home surrounded by people. And I, I heard this a lot through, during the pandemic, which is it's that I just don't feel like I'm connected. I don't feel like I belong wherever that that situation is. And I think it's just being more conscious of looking around and see who might benefit from your outreach if everything's going well in your space. So I think, you know, it's, it's not going to happen overnight. The first four years before the pandemic, most people had no idea what we were talking about. Yeah. And now, two years after the pandemic, I'll even say the first six months, the last six months have really been when people have awoken to it because I think everybody thought this was just going to go back to normal. And I think we're waking up and recognizing, hey, here's a great stat. Uh, six, 63% of the people that we saw pre-pandemic were not people we intended to see. They weren't in our calendar for the day. So that means that over half of the people that made you uh, make you feel like you're part of a bigger world, the people that when you see them, they go, Greg, how are you? And you go, hey, Pete, good to see you. And yeah. those, every one of those little interactions make you feel like you're connected and they reinforce who you are as a human being. And those all got wiped out and they're not back yet because if you're working mm -hmm. at home or everybody else that you used to see is working at home or the schedules don't align, guess who we're not seeing all those little connections every day, we call them casual collisions, that made you feel like you were part of something bigger than yourself. And so this is why even more so, we have to overcome that by getting out, by making plans, by putting it in the calendar, because you have to make up for over 50% of the people that you used to see randomly that are no longer there in many cases. So this is why right now it's critically important that we get people up to speed on this so that they can start being more conscious and intentional. Pete, I love what you're up to. The world needs a lot more of this. I uh, love the fact you came on the show to share your movement with all of us. If people want to get on board, follow you on social and do this social uh, health test, where can they go to do that? They go to the website for uh, genwellproject.org. They can go to all our social channels. We have a YouTube channel with lots of content uh, in regards to social health and social connection. And Greg, thanks again. This has been a great conversation and hopefully we can do it again sometime. We absolutely will. I can't wait to see the results of the CIHR study. I know how hard it is to get those grants. So good job on that. And I know it'll create a lot of momentum for you guys in the, in the future. Thanks very much, Greg.